1: Welcome to the New Books Network, an interview podcast with authors writing in a diverse set of fields. My name is Cody Skehan, a student in the MA program in Anthropology at the University of Iceland as a layfer Ericsson Fellow. My work focuses on environmentalism in Iceland, although my interests span anywhere from critical theory, psychoanalysis, queer theory, spirituality, and media. Today, I am joined by David Bond. Currently lo- located at Bennington College, David Bond is the Associate Director of the Center for the Advancement of Public Action, and teaches on the environment and public action. Trained as an anthropologist, David studies oil spills and their imprint on environmental science and governance. His work shows, yeah, his work shows how toxic disruptions can fix vital relations with new forms of knowledge and care. He has. Con- conducted ethnographic research on leaky refineries in the Caribbean on the figure of the Keystone XL pipeline corporate social responsibility in the tar sands of Alberta and the scientific and political response to the BP oil spill bond is currently working on three projects a critical history of the category of the environment a collaborative ethnography on the ends of oil in northern Alaska and a community engaged response to the discovery of the chemical PFOA in Bennington Vermont and who falls New York His research has been supported by Werner-Gren, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the National Science Foundation. His publications have appeared in Anthropology Now, Cultural Anthropology, and American Ethnologist. Bond holds a PhD in Anthropology from the New School for Social Research. He has taught on the Environment and Public Action at Bennington since 2013 and is the Associate Director of the Elizabeth Coleman Center for the Advancement of Public Action. He is also co-founder of the Bennington College Prison at Education Initiative. Um, And today we are talking about Negative Ecologies, Fossil Fuels, and the Discovery of the Environment, which was published in 2022 by the University of California Press. Welcome, David. Is there anything you'd like to add? Uh,
0: (laughs) That seems like quite the
1: comprehensive
0: introduction. Uh, I'm delighted to be here uh, and look forward to our conversation.
1: Great, yeah. It's um, it's always nice when there's this really nice long uh, introduction I can read, and you know, really shows how impressive and and how much work, um, has gone into uh, you know, the book I'm talking about with the author. So, very great. Um, and so yeah, to start off, <clears throat> I apologize, but I'm going to start with uh, a quote from the book because I feel like it really wonderfully encapsulates um what you're trying to do in the book, um. So yeah, in the introduction, you're right. In conversation with the anthropology of science, questions of vital materiality and new social research on fossil fuels, this book describes how the deleterious afterlives of fossil fuels gain scientific definition and to what political effect. This book is primarily attentive to the ways in which, one, the material force of fossil fuels is not fully expended in the moment of combustion, but often comes to haunt life with social chemical traces and attritional violence. Two, environmental protections do not precede the disasters of fossil fuels, but often emerge from them. Three, the objectification of the environment can gloss over embedded and embodied histories of harm. And four, the empire of oil has not done away with nature, but unloose new scientific and political desires for the natural world. Drawing these fields of inquiry and insight together, this book displaces the reason of the commodity as the methodological and conceptual basis for, the, for taming the deleterious properties of the combustible present." This book approaches the negative ecologies of the oil industry, not as accidents condensed in time and space, but as the fertile soil within new political theologies of altered life take root. Uh, that's a lot. Um, and and like I said, it's so comprehensive. There's so much to go um, into there. Um, but just starting off, I'm really interested in your material approach to fossil fuels and petrochemicals that you do throughout the book. Um, for example, you reference Marx, but, and then also you kind of take your approach and um, differ that to, of like the new materialists um, and sort of explain how your embrace of materialism is perhaps a little bit different from that theirs. So could you explain that a little bit and go into detail about um, how your approach uh, is different or maybe similar in some regards as well?
0: Happy to, uh, and thanks again for that extended <laughs> quote. That that is yeah. sort of the the one, two, three, four summary of the book. Um, let me say this: I'll start here. the The conventional story of crude oil, the the kind of the narrative that I think we're all familiar with in one one way or another, is that crude oil is the world's greatest commodity. Uh, its 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 singular wealth uh, have catapulted. Select corporations and nations into a stratosphere of planetary influence, uh, and there, there's something about it—you it, know—it's—it's—it's it's, it, it's vital, uh, essential quality to the to the contemporary economy that makes it the world's greatest commodity. And only occasionally does it break down in these things called oil spills, disasters, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the conventional story is that crude oil is the world's greatest commodity and it only occasionally breaks down. My book is premised on flipping that script and, and to say that crude oil is the world's greatest disaster, <laughs> that only for the most exceptional of moments does it cohere in the commodity form. The commodity is the event. Disaster is the structure. And by flipping that, it, it, it twists material concerns in a different direction than they've often been mobilized. And on on a sort of Marxist uh, or Marx inflected uh, social science, materialism has always been directed, mobilized to a critique of the commodity uh, that tries to take it up as the central form of of contemporary social life. And on another side, we have a kind of new materialism, post-humanism, uh all, all, all that kind of new materialism it's also turning to materiality but doing so in a way that seems singularly invested in not thinking about the negative uh mat- properties uh, of materiality and both of them i found i found uh, inadequate to really face up to uh, our crisis the crisis of uh, of our planetary present uh, and the role that fossil fuels are playing actively in producing and extending that crisis. Um, th- that's a roundabout way of just, I think, opening up some, some of what I'm trying to do in the book. Uh, and, and we can keep going on that, on that line uh, of thinking if you want.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was great. Um, and I think this might be a good uh, point in time to bring up um, your sort of Uh, discussion or or usage of um, Adorno's negative dialectics um, and how that kind of inflects your negative approach to um, uh, petrochemicals and fossil fuels. Um, And so like in early in the book, you kind of give this account of uh, negative dialectics and and, uh, historically contextualize it. Um, And and coming from this certain moment uh, within the 20th century, how do you think the results of like Adorno's work on the negative dialectics could apply to our own historical moment yes, and, uh, and how you use in the book. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, it, one, I needed to sort of show the book is called negative ecologies. <laughs> uh, and I have, I had to sort of explain what I mean by negative. Uh, and And of course Adorno is a primary sort of place to go to sort of think through what the theoretical status of the negative is. Uh, but for me, it's, it's also not quite enough because I'm also interested in ethnographic quality of the negative, which is something Adorno doesn't quite uh, get me to. Uh, but, but there is that moment early in the book where I try to sort of go through negative dialectics, um, and, and that is a very daunting philosophical text uh, of which I feel <laughs> uniquely enabled of, of commenting at large on. But I, but I was very struck um, by Adorno's turn to the negative. Uh, and, and his emphasis on the negative as a way to deflate the conceit of an otherwise relentless uh, investment in progress um, and, and the ways that that relentless momentum of progress sweeps up all, all uh, politics and otherwise critical forms of thought into sort of thinking within its momentum. Uh, and Adorno sees this momentum as, as as, I mean, he says at one point, uh, as a kind of a, a new epoch in the planet's history. Something that I think resonates deeply with how we're thinking about the Anthropocene today. And here's an early sort of emphasis on, you know, how, how we might think, how how progress is enlisting everything into its relentless momentum that disallows any serious reflection on the conditions of possibility for that momentum and the way that that momentum is eradicating the possibilities uh, of, of, a, of a fuller life um, in human terms and, and in sort of, I think, beyond human terms. So, so Adorno helped me sort of, you know, think that through. I was also very struck by the fact that as Adorno is working on negative dialectics, Rachel Carson is working on Silent Spring, <laughs> that these books have a, have a, a, a slight overlap in in how they're being uh, put together written and put out. And I think Rachel Carson in, in a curious way is very similar to Adorno. They <laughs> they're both they're both uh, emphasizing that there's something about the contemporary where the the fallout uh of this relentless commitment to progress is exceeding the game. And and yet we're singularly unable to to recognize, let alone comment, let alone confront that negativity. Uh, and, and so, I mean, this, this to me is sort of, it offers a kind of um, a different theoretical sort of starting point uh, and, and, and sh- it tries to show the, the good historical reason for doing so. Uh, but I'm at pains to emphasize as an anthropologist, it's not just that kind of theoretical turn, nor, nor necessarily that, theor- that historical turn. That is the sort of the the starting point of the book, but the ways that this insight is also present in frontline communities uh, that I work with, that that for so many of the ethnographic sites that sort of populate the book, the experience of people living next to, downwind of, downriver of fossil fuel installations is primarily an experience of profound loss, loss beyond any available measure uh, of compensation or remedy and that's that's the ethnographic starting point that's where I started with the whole project The opening chapter is sort of the me wondering out loud about the the, the theoretical uh, basis of that kind of thinking and the kind of history of it and that that first chapter tries to lay out there's a, there's a wider terrain of this loss both in in, in certain currents of theory uh, and in in certain episodes of history that we might sort of situate these ethnographic uh, experiences in conversation with.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, And the, the uh, chapter or the name of this chapter is called making the environment. Um, and in this chapter, you, you take the invention of the term environment. Um, and I would say it's kind of your central ethnographic figure that you, that you're engaging with, um, oh, yes. sort of, uh, illustrating to me how I, I interpreted, like how the environment has been made visible through hydrocarbon capitalism and the destruction, um, associated with hydrocarbon capitalism, as you said, through the work of uh, Rachel Carson and Barry Commoner. So could you like maybe give a a brief rundown of um, the invention of the term environment um, and the sort of broader, yeah, that's, that's maybe a hard task. (laughs) Um, um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is the point of the book. So it's, this is
1: like the provocation.
0: This is uh, let me let me explain maybe how I got to that way of thinking and then yeah, I, sure. I and I'd like to spend more time with this so if I don't if I don't get all it please ask me to keep going. Um, mm-hmm. One the, one of the first projects I took up uh, I was still a PhD candidate uh, and and I was I was uh, looking for a sort of field site and the BP oil spill happened I happened to have enough funding that I could go and be present uh, during that entire spill and, and one of the things I realized very quickly was that, I, mean, I, I was at a, I remember the exact moment. I was at a press conference, and a unified command, the federal government, the folks in charge of responding to the oil spill say, you know, they're talking about what they're doing. The oil spill is still going unabated now for I think it was going into its second month uh, and, and they're talking about it. And the, and the folks in charge say, look, we have two tasks in, in an oil spill. One to protect the public and two to protect the environment we're still trying to figure out what that second task means for us in this spill we don't yet understand what the environment and you know what what the defin- well, they didn't put it this way but they were still trying to figure out what the environment meant in this oil spill so protect the public protect the environment but they didn't know what it meant to protect the environment and that was that became the sort of the first task was to define the environment that was being threatened by the oil spill so that they could protect it I found this really interesting uh, that you know that, that that oil spill was was disrupting something that wasn't yet known and in that disruption it was sort of pulling the attention of the state and science to this question of what was being disturbed that wasn't yet known. I very quickly went to Congoule. Uh, you know, with this notion that the the normal and the pathological, that uh, in the history of medicine, sickness is often known before health. We only learn what healthy is through our experience of sickness. And I I sort of begin to ask, I wonder if this is a good way to think about the environment, that it's actually through disasters, it's actually through disruptions, that we come to realize what the normal uh, conditions of life are are, and are able in some way to begin to to think about them in a more scientific manner and to begin to mobilize the resources of the state to protect them. Uh, And I took that that insight, which comes out of uh, an essay I wrote about the BP oil spill on cultural anthropology, I think in 2013. And that became a kind of kernel that I I wanted to see how far I could go with that. How far is that central relationship there where it's the disaster that provokes the normal that then becomes open in new ways to science and policy, that, that the disaster is the author in some way of environmental science and environmental policy. And the further I went with that, both historically and to other ethnographic sites across North America, the more I saw that, that same kind of dynamic at play, but with, with a, a, an increased specificity that it's often fossil fuels <laughs> that are disrupting the world in ways that demand a new kind of science and a new kind of policy to manage that disruption. But the environmental science and environmental policy that emerges from these disasters of fossil fuels is one that becomes very attentive to managing the effects of fossil fuels without ever confronting the cause in a way that the fossil fuels becomes invisible and we we focus all of our attention on managing air quality or managing water quality or or managing a certain normal uh, normal definition of life that that kind of pushes the specific uh cause of that impact away uh, and focuses all of our attention the attention of environmental science and environmental policy on stabilizing the mediums of life detached from the history of their disruption That's a kind of roundabout way of getting to some of those concerns, but that's very much what the book is sort of, you know, interested in sort of exploring, narrating and describing richly at a host of sites.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, and as you described, like you can see this really evident across each chapter and each different sort of uh, ethnographic figure or, or uh, materiality uh, object that you bring up. Um, and I would just like to focus on the, the health um, concern that you brought up for a moment. Um, And so, in general, like your your approach is like demonstrating the ongoing effects of toxicity, um, the fact that it's not just this thing that just happens and is done, um, as in the BP oil spill, where it's like continuously uh, spreading and going deeper and everything like that. Um, So, I'm just curious uh, along these terms, what would be like maybe some of the like possible effects of seeing ourselves as like toxified subjects, um, caught up in like these sort of different narratives of American progress, because you speak about how not only is like petrochemicals like tied into this, it's also um, nuclear energy and atomic weapons historically from like uh, the, the same sort of historical time frame that you're talking about and how um, uh, as well as like your, your figure in um, chapter four, I believe uh, the PFOA, this, this plastic um, molecule, is. Uh, that's that um, as well is also is like caught up in, in human life and you can find it in the cell of uh, so many different animal and human species um, but on the other hand so is like strontium 90. so it's like this kind of combination DT. of oh, yes. yeah and DDT. so um, yeah, going back to the question, so what are the possible effects of seeing ourselves as like toxified subjects um, like already um, being being touched by these nuclear and petrochemical uh, forces?
0: It's great. I'm going to come at it in a roundabout way. (laughs) Uh, And then I hope hopefully I can come back to it. So, again, I want to emphasize an ethnographic starting point in that when I first started some of the the BP oil spill uh, and then I went to the tar sands of Alberta. After the BP oil spill, I was kind of curious how far that kind of central dynamic I, I saw would go. And so I decided to go to a number of different sites of fossil fuel infrastructure across North America to see How it was playing out. Tar sands of Alberta, uh, oil refineries in the Caribbean, pipeline projects, uh, and then new sites of plastics uh, pollution. Um, In each of these sites, I, I felt like when I arrived, there was a real, almost like a gravitational force field that was pulling me in one of two directions either to sort of try to think within the terms of the state. Uh, within the terms of environmental science and environmental policy, meaning either to try to begin to, tr- to to sort of interpret or make sense of people's experience in 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 ways that made that legible to the state, legible to science, and legible to the state. So there's a kind of pull to what I would call like a legal realism, where where uh, where I was I felt compelled to think within the terms of the state and just dis- and write it up within something that made it legible, made people's experience of suffering legible to environmental science or environmental policy. On the other hand, uh, in an anthropology right now, I think there's a kind of uh, a, deep, uh, a deepening investment uh, in, in insisting upon radically different concepts uh, and, and something almost completely detached from the present world. The present world is seen as, as so complicit with its own destruction the only thing we can do is come up with a set of concepts completely separate from this world, uh, and I sort of call this, you know, a kind of ontological utopia. That there's an, 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 an interest in really kind of finding finding terms, uh, narratives, storylines, concepts, and even actors that are completely different from the world that we inhabit, and become can become seeds for sort of cultivating a radically different world than this one. So. At one level, you know, one one direction is to is to sort of try to to format the kinds of suffering you're seeing into the the legibility of the state. On the other hand, try to sort of see uh, how a radically different world from this one might be the place to try to narrate and, and emphasize. I found uh, both of these inadequate uh, in that uh, the first. Uh, you know, in aligning too closely to the state, you're aligning with the institution that has authorized the kinds of destruction that's rampant around fossil fuel infrastructure. I mean, the state is not not a neutral uh, or detached party to these sites. It's very, very present. And so aligning too closely within the framework of the state leads one to sort of become, you know, complicit in those institutions. On the other hand, to ignore those that vocabulary entirely, to refuse to think within its terms, to refuse it, is also to refuse practical justice in the present tense to communities that often are are, are desperate for some attention to their plight, uh, and I and I really was struggling with this and trying to figure out how to navigate it, uh, and and one of the projects became how do we, how can we sort of take up the terms of the state. But also be fully aware uh, of, of their history of complicity, how, how they came to be. Not to naturalize or normalize them, but to see them as contingent in some way. And I think you know they can do some work for us if we're pursuing. If, if the if the project is the pursuit of justice, uh, which I take my project to be, those terms can do something for us. But they can never resolve the structure of inequity that's producing that suffering. And so there needs to be, I mean, for me, there needs to be some ability to argue with those terms to try to bring practical assistance where possible, but to never allow those terms to be definitive of the, the wider political project for justice. Now, that's a, that's a, a kind of a long roundabout uh, to getting back to where your question was. But I think it's, I think it's necessary to sort of state how, how it is I came to some, some of this way of thinking. Uh, now, the, the question of PFAS, PFOA, uh, it, it, it resonates very deeply with this earlier moment of, of what I call the environmental crisis of the late 60s with DDT and uh, strontium-90, where there's a, a similar kind of recognition that certain forms of contamination are universal. Anywhere you look for these things, DDT uh, and radioactive fallout of above ground nuclear testing, you find them. Uh, they've infiltrated the webs of life almost in a planetary sense. At that earlier moment, this this uh, leads to the eruption of profound dissent uh, about that condition, uh, and 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 some of it is really problematic, and and harkens back to notions of purity uh, and a kind of impossible before. But other currents of that dissent really face up to that contamination as a new field of politics. Uh, and to me, that earlier moment, the moment of Rachel Carson, Barry Commoner and others, however, provisionally, is also beginning to voice a critique of U.S. empire in a more materialist way than a lot of the social, the critical social theorists of that moment. Um, and we can go into that. This, this, our moment, the contemporary is another moment where we're having this revelation of how contaminated the world is. Uh, that everywhere you look, you find contamination. And, and this is leading, you know, less to a kind of a, a, a kind of a, a, ro- a romance of what was before and trying to emerge that. And, and to me, if I, if I reflect upon the currents of, of theory in anthropology, there's a lot of folks that are sort of beginning to identify with that contamination as maybe not an entirely bad thing. As something that anthropology might be might might align itself with, and be able to think uh, about possible futures uh, and about uh, uh, the kind of uh, deflation of power that might be possible through how contamination moves across institutions of power, completely uh, un, unharnessed, unheralded, uh, you know, un, un, uh, untamed. I find that a really worrisome trend. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, some of the, some of, some of how I'm thinking with Adorno in the book is around this line, that Adorno lifts up the negative, not necessarily to identify with it, not necessarily to ally his critique with the negative, but to show how the negative can provincialize logics of power and profit, but then insist that we might organize beyond the form of profit and power. So the negative is not necessarily the thing that we want to. Al- Align our politics with, but something that shows how power and profit are not not as uh, as totalizing as they project themselves to be. And in the PFAS chapter, you know, I try to take that up as, as to show how people themselves are organizing in really interesting ways uh, a, a against PFAS, uh, but not necessarily in a way that aligns completely with the negative uh, uh, of toxicity in the ways that a lot of uh, I think. I hear, uh, anthropological theory doing.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great answer. <laughs> every, every time I ask a question, it's like in a roundabout way, I'll get to your answer and and you did. And that was, yeah, I love it. Um, and yeah, for me, it just brings up so many ways to go with that. Um, I think another, um, chapter in which you really illustrate this, um, organizing around, uh, maybe around the negative, but not like basing it on the negative uh was as towards the end of the the chapter on mangroves, which is the last yeah. chapter um <clears throat> where you talk about in um where the locals after the uh, the um there' was this um sorry sorry this oil refinery and um, after a series of um, controversies where there was it was found out that it was uh, the pipes underground and things were used with um, uh, like shoddy materials and they were in, um, like uh, causing leaks underground and all of this um there was like interest in uh, the oil refinery was closed but then there was later interest in, in reopening it um, but this was something that Really affected the local economy in in very extreme ways, and then afterwards, you talk about how um, there was like you were part of meetings to sort of say like, okay, what are we going to do now? Um, So, could you describe maybe some of the um, emotions and feelings, and some of the um, like, yeah, the the um, ideas that people had in this moment of what kind of seemed like. Uh, a little bit of hopelessness, perhaps, and maybe, yeah, give some maybe some little bit more historical context or context to that.
0: Yeah. So, the, I mean, the story of the chapter is is one of Saint Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, Saint Croix is a U.S. territory, uh, and it's uh, it, it's a it's a fairly modest sized island. But for for about fifty years, it was home to the world's largest oil refinery. Um, this paradox of being very, very small and very big, uh, close and far uh, is, I think, you know, a kind of fundamental way to how U.S. empire of oil has operated. So the the story is, you know, trying to work through the history of of how this huge refinery comes to be situated uh, in this kind of out of the way U.S. territory in the Caribbean. And there's a longer history there. Uh, But the refinery was built, you know, in part, and it, on Saint Croix and became the biggest uh, refinery in the world because U.S. labor law, environmental oversight, uh, tax uh, law, and import/export restrictions didn't apply to a territory. So it, it becomes it, it, it exists in a, in a, in a gray area uh, where it, which, which is immensely profitable without any kind of responsibility to the place. Uh, the, the the Supreme Court in the U.S. has defined this relationship of the territories as foreign in a domestic sense that that the virgin islands are foreign in a domestic sense they're they're part of the us as long as it means getting a cheap uh, you know uh, taking as much as much as possible uh, from that exception but they're foreign the second there's any uh, request for accountability to the devastation uh, that's part of that production of cheap oil this is a longer story goes into it in the in the book and also a couple other articles but what you're asking about uh the refinery was built in a way that never aligned with with the expectations of of a refinery for safe for for safe operations um from the very beginning uh almost all of the waste products of the refinery were just dumped into the aquifer uh, the only freshwater aquifer on the island uh, and all kinds of really nasty chemicals were just vented out without almost any concern for public uh, health uh, or the safety of the community. Uh, this oper- this refinery, you know, operated with complete impunity, imperial impunity, we might say, uh, for most of its operation. Uh, it it finally sort of uh, came to light uh, under Obama how egregious it was, uh, and it was it was closed under just a, a litany. Uh, of environment, egregious environmental sins. Um, under Trump, it was restarted and then it was closed down again. Uh, uh, it was, it, Trump restarted to disaster, like disastrous effect uh, and then and then there's an effort right now to restart it. One The place the, the chapter is sort of thinking through is the ways that a lot of folks within the halls of power recognize the devastation the refinery has wrought upon the island of St. Croix the only freshwater aquifer on the island, completely poisoned. There's an eight-foot-thick plume of crude oil and petrochemicals that floats atop the island's only freshwater aquifer. The soils, uh, the agricultural soils uh, in in large sections of the island, contaminated. Uh, The fisheries collapsed through the pollution of the coasts. Just just extensive ecological destruction of St. Croix. Everyone recognizes this. Those in the halls of power recognize this. But in the halls of power, a very odd solution comes into focus. The only way to face up to the immense cost of cleaning that mess up is what? Restart the refinery. That's the only way that they can get their head around generating enough cash to begin to invest in environmental restoration and repair. This, of course, to residents, uh, sounds completely ludicrous, <laughs> that, that the only way to solve the problems of the refinery is to sort of baptize the refinery from all sins. Uh, no, they're having none of it. And, and so I was very struck and inspired by, with some of the communities I'm working with on St. Croix about how they refuse this logic and how they insist upon a, a different way of, of, of sort of demanding accountability from history, about, about never letting the colonial history of the place dissolve into concerns uh, about ecological uh, crisis now or about the future of climate change, all of which are present. The colonial history is still is voiced within those demands. Um, and the ways that they begin to, to, to voice uh, and organize themselves around a radically different understanding of the economy, one that centers care and repair over the, the pragmatics of cost uh, in ways that I find really inspiring. Uh, and and that, that chapter is sort of trying to narrate some of that process uh, and, and some of how, how the negative ecologies uh, of, of, of this refinery, how they've devastated the island in, in the halls of power, it becomes an excuse for, for washing away the sins of the refinery and trying to reboot it in the hopes of another lottery ticket that can pay enough to clean it up. Where on, on, in the communities that have lived that decept- devastation firsthand, those negative ecologies become the, the basis of a more radical demand to remake an economy around care and repair um, that I found quite, I find quite exciting.
1: Yeah, excuse me. That is that is super exciting, Um, and I I just really love how you contextualize the the um, colonial uh, like uh, sorry decolonial um, sort of emphasis the residents place on this uh, you know restoring this to not some as you said like maybe not some romantic uh, history or or past but to uh, at least address these the uh, effects of colonialism and oil on this island. Um, and I think central to this, uh, sort of notion of, um, reconstruction and, and care in this, uh, in St. Croix is, um, of, around mangroves, um, the, the important role that mangroves serve, um, that wasn't really known, um, for so long until sort of, you know, as you say, uh, as the whole book is about until, you know, things went wrong because of, um, uh, hydrocarbons and, and oil and pollution and everything. Um, so could you describe a little bit, um, first, uh, the importance of mangroves to these, um, to St. Croix and not only just St. Croix, but the entire world, like, uh, ecological system. Um, yeah. and then I'm also curious, like how it came about, um, that you've, that you decided to focus like, or, or sort of, um, uh, yeah, sort of situate, uh, this chapter on mangroves because, Um, You could have just focused on the oil refinery uh, or something and kind of made that the sort of central negative ecological uh, starting point. But you also included mangroves. So could you talk about that a little bit as well? Yeah, the
0: the mangrove, I end with a mangrove because I find it a kind of deeply materialist emblem of a more radical way of being in the world that that is not um an ontology that exists in in a future utopia but a kind of model of a radical different social organization that's taken root in colonial histories but grows in defiance of them and that's that to me was a that that was where that's where I wanted to end the book on that on that notion so that's that how did I get to this um you know, the, the mangrove, as we now know, is, is one of the, the, the most vibrantly generous ecosystems on earth. The mangrove, uh, it stitches together all kinds of otherwise separate systems, rivers, uh, wetlands, oceans, coasts, and holds them together in some way where the flourishing far exceeds the component parts. Mang- mangroves draw together different different ecological systems and by by holding them together lets them flourish far beyond what any single system is capable of and 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 you know there's a lot of exciting work on mangroves and sort of the more the more you look at what they do the more you draw out their linkages to worldwide contributions planetary contributions again there's 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 other things that infiltrate the web of life beyond just toxicity and mangroves are one of those things if you center and think with, you can see how, how their, their, their webs of influence extend uh, uh, to a planetary scale uh, in ways that are, that are really interesting and, and good to think with. Uh, so I, I kind of want to center that and think about that. The question to me, though, is also became when and how did that capacity of mangroves become possible? And if you start to look at the science of mangroves, up until fairly recently, mangroves were sort of despised by a lot of biologists and they were seen as kind of icky, gross, uh, bad, poor, uh, depauperate, uh areas. There was nothing interesting there, and there was nothing interesting because they didn't they didn't align themselves with a script of disciplinary thinking uh, in 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 ways that were easy to understand. But it turns out. The ways they defy those scripts is, is precisely why they're so massively significant uh, on, on the planetary scale and, and the regional scale. So, uh, how, did, how did it become possible to think about mangroves in this way? Well, it turns out uh, mangroves are the most susceptible um, uh, plant form to oil spills. That, that, that uh, when there's an oil spill, the most vulnerable kind of ecosystem to that oil spill. Is mangroves that oil coats the roots and by coating the roots strangles them uh, and very quickly eradicates uh, uh, coastal mangrove estuaries. Um, this was you know something that, that came to light in the in the seventies and eighties. Uh, and mangroves, if you look at like a, if there's an oil spill, what to protect first? What are the most vulnerable things? Mangroves are at the very very top of that list. This is odd to me, so I start looking and start digging. And realize in, the, in this um, chapter, there is a massive investment in oil refining in the Caribbean in the 60s and 70s. As environmental legislation is passed, landmark environmental legislation is passing in the U.S., Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, uh, NEPA, uh, and the Environmental Protection Agency comes into being in the U.S., it puts significant restrictions on oil refineries in the U.S., uh, at the same time, the U.S. is running out of its domestic reserve of crude oil. Uh, Texas and parts of California and Oklahoma—the huge reserves that were there—are running. They're starting to peak and now come down. Uh, this, uh, you know, there's a there's a pretty healthy debate about what to do about that. Whether to invest in energy efficiency or compel oil from elsewhere. Where does the U.S. land? Compel oil from elsewhere. This means new dependence on on uh, foreign oil that's brought to the U.S. by supertankers. Many of those supertankers pass through the Caribbean. So you have landmark environmental legislation restricting what refineries can do in the U.S. You have domestic reserves of crude peaking and declining and a new reliance on uh, supertankers bringing foreign oil from elsewhere. This makes the Caribbean an opportune place to remake U.S. refining capacity in a a kind of colonial way, in, in a way that's offshore enough that it's no longer subject to environmental oversight or U.S. labor law uh, and become, can become massively profitable at refining oil offshore and shipping the final product to the U.S. So huge investments in, in refining across the Caribbean by U.S. oil companies. Very quickly, the Caribbean becomes the biggest center of oil refining in the world. Uh, it's kind of an untold story of the Caribbean in the 60s and 70s, how it was remade into an oil refining hub for the U.S., uh, part of this uh, shipment ends up leading to massive amounts of oil being spilled in coastal waters in the Caribbean. The, this is felt most severely in the eradication of mangroves. So as, as the Caribbean is rebuilt, as a ref, as a kind of imperial refining outpost for the U.S. addiction to fossil fuels, this leads to sort of all kinds of coastal oil spills, small and large, which is felt most, most significantly, most strikingly in how those oil spills eradicate mangrove estuaries all across the Caribbean. And very quickly after these small and big oil spills, mangroves completely, they, they, they just they, they, uh, shrivel up and die in a matter of days. And then very quickly, nearby fisheries start collapsing. You have unexpected experiences of coastal erosion. Uh, a lot of, uh, of, of contaminants that are washed away are no longer filtered, but are sort of sent out to sea. Uh, and you have all of these rippling effects of what happens to coastal life when the anchor of the mangrove is ripped out. This leads to a, a whole host of fundamentally new inquiries into the meaning of mangroves, where previous studies had tried to, tried to figure out how mangroves fit within a disciplinary understanding of life. And they never did. And so they were seen as kind of weird outliers, in, in uninteresting. This new kind of inquiry is centering on what's happening when mangroves disappear. And by centering that loss, it comes up with a much more vibrant, rich understanding of the contribution mangroves make to coastal life. Uh, and this whole new ecology of mangroves begins to take forceful definition. So much of the of the of the early. Of the earliest studies that center the productivity, the insane ecological productivity of mangroves, are studies that are funded in the wake of their eradication in Caribbean oil spills. It's it's a really like funny like little context that the oil spills open up a new question, provide funding for its investigation, uh, and end up becoming the foundation of a, of a radically new ecological appreciation of mangroves. Uh, and as the uh, as the mangrove is appreciated in this new way, it comes to it becomes a, a new kind of symbol of what it means to be Caribbean for people themselves, and and there's a new kind of identification with the mangrove as something that that's a radically different way of being in the world, um, and I just I, I love I love that I love that story the ways it sort of pulls together all of these histories and the way that the mangrove sort of you know as 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 a symbol. Takes root in a colonial history of devastation, but, but defies that devastation, demands something new from it, and stands against uh, its 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 continuation. Uh, and that seemed, you know, a good place for the book to draw all the threads together into something that offered a different a different way of thinking about a present tense politics.
1: Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It was a great place to end the book just to bring so many different overlapping and interconnected uh, themes and webs together. Um, so, and and as I understand it, like um, years of research and different projects coming together kind of came together in this book. Um, so as you were doing these different projects and um, everything, how did it kind of like come together of like seeing these connections between these different sites, these different um, petrochemical objects, these different things. Uh, how did that sort of form? If you could kind of go over that briefly, because I know there's probably a long, long story yeah. behind all of that. <laughs> there's
0: a long story but I mean, uh, I don't think it's a uh, negative ecologies is maybe a conventional first book. A first book is often a kind of case extended case study in anthropology. And that, that project kind of bored me early on, <laughs> and for lack of a better word, sorry. Uh, and I, I kind of wanted to to think in a different kind of way about 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 the the world at hand. Uh, I had the great privilege of being able to be curious for a number of years and to ask open ended questions that I didn't know how to answer, uh, and I was able to stitch together various forms of support to to visit a whole host of, of sites around North America where fossil fuels were, were very central uh, to the place and in some way, shape, or form were actively destroying the place. Uh, and I had the great opportunity to collaborate with communities that were trying to figure out how to stand up to that destruction in, in one way or another. Uh, I think that's, that is a, maybe a, a unique experience Uh, And it's and it's one that, uh, you know, I don't I don't think it had initially had a kind of coherency to its, its aim. It was really just me feeling out and trying to figure out how far some vague ideas I had might go and then seeing them resonating in all of these different sites. And as I joined with with communities trying to fight fossil fuels around North America, realizing how. This kind of thinking might might make a contribution to that struggle while also trying to think about how it can it can change a little bit about how anthropology thinks about these problems um, but that's also it comes out of the immense privilege of being able to be curious about something for five, six years without necessarily having to have this kind of coherent uh framework uh, that's pumped out in like, you know, routine publications, uh, for career advancement. Uh, I look back and I'm very grateful for the opportunity I had. I'm not sure if it could have, it would have made sense or been possible to do that kind of thinking and that kind of work. Uh, if, 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 if I was in a place that had a bit more, uh, routinized expectations for, for academic output, um, And so there's there's something to it that that, I mean I'll just say that and reflect on it, but but that I really was was had to sort of follow things I uh, pull on threads I didn't know where they went, ask questions I didn't even know how to answer, and sort of follow it in an open ended way for a number of years before it became to cohere to me as ah I think there's a book here in in pulling these sites together and allowing for their differences to stand, but but showing how there's a commensurability to how the problem is formulated uh, and and how science and policy respond and how people themselves are demanding something beyond that. Um, and hopefully that comes through in the book.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I think it, it does so well. Um, as you say, like there does seem to be this, like, you know, obviously this the central theme of um, like the petrochemicals and, and the way that like um, hydrocarbons and and the the effect they have on the environment the way that they're talked about the effects they have and then how people respond to it as you say kind of is surprisingly a little bit homogenous but as you say you know there are the differences in each place but it is it's just really striking um and, and i really appreciate how you're able to like bring that out without reducing them to being the same effect everywhere just you know flattening the difference um so i th- I think that was wonderful
0: um, I, mean, I, I mean I was struck very early on of how, in each of this each of the places I was sort of going, the devastation that was underway exceeded any any practical benefit the community was going to get or even the ability of law uh and policy as written to compensate for that loss that these were these were these the, the loss, the devastation was, was grossly in excess of available measures of, of gain or, or, or compensation. Uh, and I became really interested in how, how that loss is then domesticated into the shadow of gain or, 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 or the, the fantasy of gain. You know, what work is required by science and the state to take that, that devastation And make it something that always appears as a line item in the ledger of gain, that always appears as something secondary to the promised profit. And that to me was a labor that that was, you know, that was happening at all these sites. That it wasn't something that was natural, it was something that there was a tremendous effort being made to pull that devastation down into something that would stand in the shadow of of the promised profit.
1: Yeah, like I think, for me, there's just so much commensurability between like uh, capitalism and imperialism and hydrocarbons and the work that that you're illustri- that you're talking about that goes into making it seem like you know profitable and and the efficient way of doing it and the the right way of doing it you could say, um, which is similar to how much. Ideological investment and and other things have gone into um, maintaining the capitalism and imperialism as systems like um, they just don't occur and and become the most natural and easiest ways of occurring. They just – there's so much investment and work that goes into that. Um, Yeah. I mean they they operate
0: as long as the fiction of of coming profit is maintained.
1: Exactly. They're allowed
0: to maintain a kind of uh, momentum. But the Mm. profit rarely comes at least in a general way. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Centering <laughs> and, and... loss, to me, it's, it's also the, the other part. I mean, I think you're getting at some of this, but the centering of loss is also a way to try to reformulate a critique uh, of uh, fossil fuel capitalism or the American empire of oil, depending on how you want to sort of frame it. it it's, it's trying to formulate a different critique of that that doesn't depend on the reason of the commodity that that has a different kind of ecological and ethnographic foundation for that critique that can nonetheless offer a a a a strong confrontation for that project
1: definitely yeah um and and along the lines of this confrontation one um one of the chapters we haven't touched on so much yet, perhaps, is the um, the chapter you have on the Dakota XL pipeline and, and the resistance to that um, called Occupying the Implication. Um, and you start out with a quote uh, from Jacques Francière that says, politics makes visible that which had uh, no reason to be seen. Um, and I, I think that's just a wonderful quote to start out this chapter, because um, you're talking about just... Just all the um work from these these um protesters that that happen to like bring about the attention to it the media focus and everything and and um like you said the the benefits they're not getting um from these happening so could you maybe uh and it's a short chapter so can maybe, maybe you could outline it real quick and yeah. and why you put this in the middle of the book it's the pivot point in the book so the the mm-hmm. uh, a, a broad there's
0: a short introduction and then a broad historical and more theoretical kind of framing of how we might think about the environment uh, and and how there's an environmental crisis that offers a fairly radical critique of some of these issues that then it's very quickly enlisted uh, to become complicit in um, uh, power and profit. Uh, the first two chapters are very much you know part of that complicity. Uh, one about how the environment is co opted into sort of extending state power b p oil spill, the second uh, uh in the tar sands about how the environment gets enlisted into extending corporate power so the the first two are very much how the how environmental science and environmental policy become complicit in state power corporate power then there's the pivot chapter of the of the pipeline, which is really me you know sort of saying. There's ways that people are starting to demand something of environmental science and environmental policy that go that that pushes it beyond the way it's become complicit in in, in uh, the American addiction to oil. So the where I where I sort of first saw this was on these pipeline projects where you know there's folks that are sort of they're they're not in the ones that I, I spent the most time with and sort of following they weren't yet being built they were just being proposed. But the venues of discussion for that came to demand something of environmental science and environmental policy that it itself, as constituted, could not do. And they began to sort of, I called it, occupy the implication that people began to link pipeline projects to planetary catastrophe, that if we build this pipeline, it will be a lit fuse to global warming, to the melting of the ice caps, to devastation worldwide. And they began to link up these pipeline projects to a whole host of catastrophes underway at a planetary scale and at a local scale. And they began to demand something of environmental science and policy that it respond to those catastrophes, which it is singularly incapable of doing. Uh, and so there was this huge mismatch between how the process was sort of of permitting these pipelines was set to proceed uh, along certain existing forms of science and policy and the demands that were being made of that process by people who were becoming more and more interested and so the pipeline project becomes this place where the environmental science and environmental policy no longer is com- completely complicit with state power or corporate power but becomes sort of something's demanded of it that makes it makes it have to trips it up makes it stuck somewhere that it doesn't know how to proceed uh, and so that's that's that sort of pivot chapter, and then the next two chapters are are ways that sort of allow the negative excess of fossil fuels to be acknowledged publicly, to to allow that negativity not to be the grounds of of domesticating it into profit in ways that extend state power or corporate power, but let the negativity sit uh, in you know on its own and 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 demand recognition. As something that is, that is in excess of any form of compensation or remedy, and then what happens in that recognition, uh, and so the two chapters—the plastics pollution—and uh, then the the, the, the Caribbean mangrove—are both about what what kinds of politics and what kinds of science and what kinds of care and repair begin to form when we hold that negative uh, on its own and let it and and recognize how it exceeds. Um, the, the available, uh, mechanisms,
1: uh, of, uh, of remediation. Mm, Wonderful. Um, that's a, that's a great summary, um, of the entire book and, and the importance of that even short chapter for just making this pivot, as you say. Um, and it's like, it just astonishes me how well constructed this book is from beginning to end and how well everything lines up. It's just so wonderful. Um, and, and so along that line, um, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to add about the book? Anything that um, we didn't cover that you would like to bring attention to?
0: No, I mean, I hope, um, uh, you know, it's written um, one for uh, some of the communities I work with have become one of its, my, the biggest audiences of my work. And so I'm, I'm actually getting a lot of feedback from the from the sites I'm working at um uh about about how it helps them sort of focus attention uh and i also hope you know there's a whole generation of i think uh, graduate students coming up who who feel the world shifting beyond the given genre of explanation in anthropology that something of our of our world is is lurching is 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 slipping is breaking in ways that it, that that demand something beyond the genres of explanation we've inherited, and I hope this book uh, op- opens up ways for students to take seriously the way the world is 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 breaking and moving beyond, and 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 I think that the 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 radical contributions anthropology might make by taking those, those ruptures, upheavals more seriously. Uh, not, and that's not to say in any way, shape, or form to burn anthropology down uh, or, or, or to sever all relationship to the history of the discipline, which I think is far more varied, radical, and consequential than has often been recognized. But it is to say something more is needed today. Uh, and, and I hope that, uh, that the
1: book speaks to that project for students. Mm. As a, as a current grad student, um, I would say I definitely, definitely, um, it definitely inspires me in my own writing and makes me really interested in, um, pursuing along these similar sorts of paths, uh, within my own research and everything. So, um just the, the wedding of theory and practice and, and ethnography in a really interesting way and making it really, as you say, like, um, attendant to the the activist communities and, and the communities you're working with and their, um, you know, resistance against not only environmental collapse, but also colonialism. It's just, uh, I think, exactly what's needed right now. Um, so it's really appreciated. It's great to hear. Um, yeah. So along those lines, uh, would you like to like, give a little bit of an explanation of what you're working on next? What's in the works? Uh, anything coming in the future?
0: Uh, working on those last two chapters will be standalone books. So the PFAS uh, will, will become its own book, um, uh, tracking out the way that these forever chemicals uh, have sort of made a mockery. Of existing environmental science and policy, they defy every presumption that went in to making environmental science and policy uh, but that is not reason for despair as much as some anthropolo- uh, anthropologists or, or theorists uh, insist it is yeah, it's a it's a reason to sort of mark out where the new grounds of a, of a more confrontational politics might begin uh, so that's that's in information and then also the work with the my collaborative work with the folks on St. Croix continues. I was just on a phone call with them yesterday, and we're trying to figure out how to, uh, I wrote a kind of a public history of the refinery, and they're trying to incorporate that into some educational materials, I think. And so there's a kind of ongoing project about how, how to make some of these histories and these stories more accessible to the communities um, uh, in them. So that's, that's the other project.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, that's also something that's very much needed right now. I think um, not only, you know, writing text for academics or, or for people within anthropology and other fields, but yeah, for the people you're actually working with and, and the public. So this is, this is great. Um, yeah. So where can listeners um, get your book if they're interested in picking up a copy?
0: uh at any good bookstore <laughs> <laughs> there you go perfect no. uh, I mean, uh,
1: <laughs>
0: university of california press website goes to uh if you can't find it there or can't afford it there email me um and uh you know we can figure something out uh all of my publications are also on my website free of charge uh all of the uh, essays articles and things i've written both uh, for scholarly audiences and for public audiences um and that's just uh if you Google David Bond and Bennington College, it pops right up. Um
1: great. Yeah, I know for one I'll be going to your website and checking out some of those articles and essays now. Uh that's yeah, very tempting prospect. Um <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, thank you for joining me, David Bond. Um and thank you everyone who's listening for tuning into the New Books Network. Uh make sure to check out David's book, Negative Ecologies, Fossil Fuels and the Discovery of the Environment. And this is your host, Cody Skahan signing off for now.